Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Blockhash Podcast. We have another great episode for you today. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and follow wherever you are tuning in. Hold tight for just a second as we play a quick advertisement and countdown video while we wait for everyone to join. Thank you and we hope that you enjoy the episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Blockhash Exploring the Blockchain, episode 322. Here back for part two with Acquire. Again, here with uh, Brian, the CEO, and Paul, a new face, the CTO, to talk about where they're at now with Acquire and some of the things they're working on here in 2023 and where they're going in the future. Guys, it's a pleasure to have you back. How are you guys doing today? Good, man. Thanks for having us. Uh, it has been a minute and a lot's definitely changed. Absolutely. Um, guys, tell me a little bit about each of you, Brian. I'm sure everyone kind of knows a little bit about you, but maybe a quick little introduction. And Paul um, mm -hmm. would love to know a bit about you and your origins as well. Whoever wants to go first. Yeah, I mean, I'll lead in for Paul. Uh, I'll tee him up really, really nicely here. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you know, we... Uh, we met a little while ago during one of our growth phases. Um, we were in the process of actually a pivot. Um, we, we still have a core product in mind of bringing private equities to retail investors. But along the way, we discovered some massive problems across the uh, private placement sector, especially within fund management, fund administration, you know, getting those funds direct to investors and you know, I think that is a barrier to getting us to, you know, your Robin Hood of private placement assets, right? Uh, so we decided to, you know, focus our energies and what we had built so far onto tools that, you know, service asset managers, funds, uh, private equity funds, venture capital funds, anybody bringing a private financial product direct to consumers um, and, and bring them into the digital world, you know, give them a blockchain you know, underpinning uh, for their shares. And, and a piece of that was really complicated. You know, it's, it's, it's credentialing, it's regulation, it's compliance. And um, Paul and I met through an event that we throw here in Nashville for traditional finance people and uh, the, the, uh, the blockchain community here, people building on blockchain in various uh, ways. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll let Paul uh, connect. Yeah. <laughs> So just so you know, Brian's kind of like a local celebrity in the blockchain space. I mean, people come, he won't say this. He'll never say this about himself, but whenever people have questions about what's happening, they go to Brian. And so you know, he, he's kind of like the node of our little network here in the Nashville area, in particular in Tennessee in general. Um, there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit here. There's a lot going on inside of Nashville. Nashville's growing. It's kind of growing a lot like Austin, Texas. It feels a lot like that. There's a lot of healthcare tech startups here and, and fintech starting to move in this area too because of the tax advantages of being in the Nashville area. So lots of lots of ha lots happening here. Um, but specifically for me, I was I was actually working on a particular project where I was looking at potentially getting funding on a on a product that I was developing with some other people. And I'd heard about Brian's platform. I'm like, wow, I just not knowing exactly what the platform was about. I'm like, I would love to 
have a way to like maybe launch our product to get our funded, you know, our fund funding rounds like kind of set up through his his company because it sounds like you know he's he's, he's perfect fit for what we're trying to do. Um, anyway, as I got into the understanding how the product works and how how it. it I'm like, wow, actually this, this thing that Brian's built is kind of cooler than the thing I was working on. <laughs> and so I was like, wait a minute, Brian, maybe I can help you with, you know, like launch this thing and get it, you know, in where it needs to be. And um, I've been doing software for a very long time, 20, 25 years. And, and, and I typically work in highly regulated spaces where, you know, to be competitive, you got to be like ultra compliant. And that's, that's what Brian's trying to do. That's what we're trying to do at Acquire Invest. It's, it's actually that Compliance, you know, being competitive in a compliant way can be a, a, a competitive discriminator in the market because, you know, you, you've got to be able to like, especially in this industry, you got to be really good at, at making sure the regulators are happy and, that, and everyone's money is safe. And so I'm naturally drawn to that kind of work. And that's, that's what we're doing now. And what we're building is something that, uh, you know, our customers can definitely feel confident that they're in a safe place, that we're handling things in a compliant way, that, um, it's just, it's just different than what you're hearing in a lot of places in the market now. So in a sense, we're kind of like building something that's a safe, safe place, like an oasis in a desert right now is what we're building. And so I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, you guys definitely have a really unique approach, I think, especially considering the contagion that's happened in the last year across finance, just generally from, uh, you know, crypto to traditional banking and, you know, hopefully nothing else after this, but who knows. But, you know, that need for a safe place to go in a haven to invest and to diversify is very important for, I think, a lot of people today. And I know you mentioned, you know, previously in the last episode, you know, wanting to build that kind of Robin Hood for private equity, private placements, but now wanting to piv pivot a little bit and shift. Can you talk a bit more about what that shift kind of looks like for you guys? Yeah, um, you know, the, the goal, the end goal remains the same. It's going to take us a minute longer to get there, right? Uh, the the network that is private equity, private markets is very fragmented and disconnected. Um, it's still running on a lot of manual processes. Even if there are some tools out there uh, that allow you to automate certain things, it's very you know compartmentalized. Um, you know, and what we found was getting private equity to retail investors at scale with cost efficiencies required to bring something to scale was actually a lot more complicated in this market than, you know, it should be. Um, you know, we, we saw a lot more problems to fix along the way. Uh, and it will it initial or it will eventually end up leading to, you know, that, that uh, Robin hood of private placements, right. For lack of a faster way to explain it. Um, you know, what, what we're doing now is focused on businesses. So it's a B2B product. Um, allowing them to take their financial products direct to their investors, their consumers. So B to B to C. Um, we are actually giving funds, asset managers, institutions, the ability to white label both a front end and a back end to manage uh, onboarding of investors, document signing, uh, transaction processing, linking bank accounts. Um, and it all settles. Every investment into each product is settled using smart contracts. Um, so we automate that settlement process and <clears throat> in the process of doing so, we're able to embed best practices, um, rules and regulations, uh, identity checks along the way. And that's managed through both off-chain and on-chain databases uh, that work together and, and, and they all kind of flow through the smart contract. Um, so that gives us the ability to, 
you know, as Paul mentioned earlier, create a, you know, safer environment for investors and fund operators to, you know, onboard people and, and get investment in and ultimately just operate private markets. Um, so that's kind of where the pivot came from is how do we get these products into our market? This ended up being the solution. So it's a really large market too. I mean, Brian, maybe you can better describe it than me, but you know, people think of public markets and kind of what happens there all this, they don't really understand how large private markets are. Yeah. I mean, well, there's, there's a, <laughs> this is probably something that attracted Paul to it to be, to begin with. I mean, the market really is massive. I mean, it is rivaling the size of, uh, you know, our public markets. Like if you're buying Apple stock and all that stuff, you know, it's, it seems like those are the only investments you can get access to. Um, even funds that want to bring access to retail investors can do so through our B2B platform. Uh, depends on how they file with the SEC and so on and so forth. But, you know, in terms of the size, I think the private markets are so big because there's a lot of opportunity there. And typically high net worth individuals, you know, companies, funds, funds of funds, family offices, they like to invest in deals that outperform the market. And that typically sits inside of the private side, right? You're looking at private real estate deals, you know, people that own NBA teams fractionally through LLCs that are managed by a family office. And that's that's a deal that's going to return you more than your average 8% over 10 years in the S and P 500. Um, you know, it just, it just outperforms, you know, so it grew very, very large and due to rules and regulations kind of set forth by the sec, at least here in the United States. And there are similar rules and governing bodies in other countries, you know, that, um, that kind of placed a line in the sand between retail, you know, public markets and, you know, your accredited, typically accredited private markets. And we're, we've seen kind of a blend between the two over the last, you know, six, seven, eight years after the Jobs Act came out in 2015. And, you know, you're seeing down market participants coming into high level private deals at lower dollar volumes, requiring a demand for, you know, scalable technology and scalable solutions. You know, so how do we get, how do we continue to get that scalable in a way where, you know, the big institutions can bring some of the best funds to market for a larger group of people. Um, and initially, it's just, it's a larger group of accredited investors at, you know, 50000 100000 $200,000 minimums. Uh, while there are some other venture capital funds, private equity funds that are looking at like minimums that are in the thousands, single digit uh, thousands, which is very unique. Um, so, the technology really does span, you know, uh, the, the gamut of the private market. Got it. Yeah. And I know the private market is very massive. I think bigger than most people really pay attention to because they only retail investors only really pay attention to the public markets, you know, buying Apple stock, buying Tesla stock, things like that, buying crypto. Um, I don't think they understand how expansive it is. Um, and getting into like, or being a B to B to C model, does that add other additional layers of complexity in terms of compliance and regulations that you guys have to follow? Um, or what's that kind of like for you guys in terms of making sure that you're abiding by all the laws, but you're able to still go down this, this pathway? Yeah, great question. Um, there's actually layers to the compliance part, right? Um, and specifically around, is it more, com more complex for 
B2B to C versus something else, um, you know, just regular B2B or B2C. Uh, public markets have, you know, you have to go IPO to get into a public market typically uh, or do an, a special purpose vehicle, uh, acquisition vehicle. Uh, and those are going through some pretty heavy uh, disclosures. You have to do a lot of due diligence. You're, you're going through a, a, a big uh, filtration process there. Um, in the private markets, there's different rules and regulations that change the compliance required by each fund going to market based on how they file with the SEC. So a Reg A plus, for example, gives you the ability to solicit differently than in two a different group of people that can invest than a 506A or B uh, offering that's a regular Reg D, right? Um, which are basically accredited only investors within a certain jurisdiction, you know, not even outside of the U.S. So with that in mind, we actually took the different rules and regulations. And we said, how can we build this in a very simple automated way into the platform where all we need to do during the onboarding process with a client is how did you file, right? They send us how they filed. We look at their PPM. And we set up that account, that account for them. So now they have a front end and a back end portal, front end facing investors, back end facing their team and their, uh, the vendors help that help them operate that fund. And, you know, it's, it's, it really isn't that crazy for us because once you kind of codify it, uh, you just have to keep up with changing the changing rules and regulations and make sure that it stays compliant. Um, ultimately you have to have licenses the funds have to have licenses to sell, you know, to, they have to file certain things a certain way. Um, and depending on how you file, it may change the, the, the level of licenses you have to have. So ultimately our company only just only does uh, verification on our clients to make sure that they are, um, you know, filed correctly. They do have the right licenses, uh, you know, and, and beyond that, when it, when you think about securities, custody, uh, transaction processing, um, you know, what we've done is actually integrate uh, institutional grade tools into the platform to make us go from kind of zero to, you know, institutional ready um, out of the gate, you know, which means we have uh, custody through a bank and trust that specifically does custody for securities assets on the blockchain. Um, and, you know, when you think about the banking side, you're, where does the money go? Where does it sit? Does it stop somewhere and go somewhere else? Well, we use escrow accounts for many of our clients and the money does fly into that escrow account, sits there, it's protected, it's independent of the bank. So, you know, if the bank falls, it is under, you know, the trust structure to where it, it has a beneficial owner. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've gone to great lengths to figure out how to insulate our system and make it repeatable for funds of any type to kind of, you know, do the same action over and over again. You know, they can bring six, seven funds to market inside of their own their own platform, and you can actually invest directly into any of those funds without having to go through the same process two, three, four times. Uh, you know, just do it once. You you onboard once and you're in, right? You can invest at any point in time at that point forward. Yeah, I think you answered kind of my next question a little bit too, which was what kind of safeguards do you kind of apply to help, you know, make this system safe, whether it's 
institutional grade tools and custody and escrow or verification of clients. Um, is that kind of like a mix of different things for you that all comes together that makes this um, more safe and secure and trustworthy? Or do you guys do something even more unique? It's definitely a mix. I mean, I'll, I'll let uh, Paul talk a little bit about our architecture as well, because, mm -hmm. you know, technology, compliance, you know, identity protections, uh, personally identifiable information, all of that mm -hmm. stuff comes into play here. Uh, and we're doing it on behalf of individual businesses, isolating databases for each client. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I can Paul's talk a bit about that. Yeah. So, so, you know, basically what we're, we're handling people's money. I mean, this is like a super important responsibility. We had to be extremely careful that we're hundred percent safe with how we handle it and how we track it and make sure that it ends up where it needs to end up. So a lot of what we're doing on the technology side is we're not just logging what happens. We're like capturing transactional information in multiple locations so that we can print out a complete history of every, everything that goes through the system and how it works and how people transact money. Um, and, and we're doing it in a way that uh, is fault tolerant. And, and I think what was really interesting, Brian, that you definitely should talk about is it, like in public markets, people think, oh, I just buy a stock or I just buy something. It's just like so easy because but with private markets, it's, it can be very different depending on the fund that you're trying to invest in. It may have special rules for participation in that fund. Like it may be you have to be an accredited investor or you have to, you know, there's some other requirement. You have to be in the United States or you have to have some other issue. It makes it the perfect, the perfect use case for smart contracts because you can actually take an investment, a security, and you can actually wrap it in a smart contract that has those rules baked in, and and allows you to transact compliantly with, with perfection without having to worry about it, stuff. And um, and and I think something very cool to talk about, Brian, if you got a second, is to talk about how clawbacks and burns work because that's that's fascinating. Yeah, most definitely. Um... So without making it super technical, right? Uh, you know, I guess we'll we'll uh, we'll dig in on on the mint burn clawback function and how that relates to, you know, transfer restrictions. Um, you know, you you you've probably heard of mint mint and burn in a number of different uh, types of blockchain applications. Uh, for us, make maintaining a share that has the capability of remediation in the court in the event that, for example, you commit a crime and your assets are frozen or, um, you know, an individual goes through a divorce and they have to sell something. They're trying to sell it to somebody else that they can't sell it to. Right. So you're on an exchange and it's checking basically who you are. Are you say who you are? Are you, are you who you say you, <laughs> you are? And right. then, uh, you know, what it's doing is saying, okay, we will allow, or we will disallow this trade. Um, or you have to complete another action before the trade occurs. Uh, so mint burn and clawback is the ability to remediate any number of issues and the transfer restrictions kind of built into that token as well, um, help us kind of prevent the need for even remediation. So there's kind of two layers there. Um, if we've codified a lot of the potential issues that would, that would require remediation, we have less need for remediation. Now, someone could you could lose your wallet. Someone could steal your, you know, stuff somehow, your account, uh, and transfer it to their own account somewhere else in, on the internet, on some other, you know, uh, digital wallet. Uh, the difference here is number one: all of our securities sit in a uh, bank and trust custodied wallet that that bank operates and 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 holds. Um, so they're they're doing this on your behalf, much like you know anything else is done. Today, same custody rules, just applied with one layer of technology. 
Um, and then the mint burn clawback is we have to actually go to that person's wallet and say, this doesn't belong here. Let's burn it in your wallet and reissue it to Paul. Mm-hmm. So that's basically Brandon just stole Paul's stuff and we just stole it back from Brandon, gave it back to Paul. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that goes through, uh, you know, uh, layers um, of checking before we actually do anything like this. It has to, um, has to actually be done by a transfer agent, someone that's licensed to approve, disapprove, or remediate transactions. You know, this isn't something that, you know, I'm sitting here doing. Uh, I'm not a transfer agent personally. We have transfer agents we've linked into our system uh, that help us, um, you know, operate these specific functions within the confines of, you know, the government's rules and regulation. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, the key takeaway on there is that there's a lot of fear in the market, especially around digital assets, that if I'm an uneducated user and I, or a customer and I make a mistake, I could lose everything and it would be forever. But what we're building is we're building a platform that allows people to have a bit of fault tolerance there that if mistakes are made, there's ways to remediate those mistakes. And it definitely is a process, you know, I mean, it could be turned into a legal process depending on the scenario that we're in, but it's not, you know, you know people can't come in and just steal your stuff and it's gone forever. There's ways of, of, of doing the right thing, you know, and staying compliant. So, so that should make this platform and this, this, what we're trying to do way, way more attractive to the average uh, user who's trying to get into the digital space when it comes to securities. Yeah. yeah having those uh, protections, having those, you know, guarantees, I think are very, very uh, appetizing for a lot of people right now, especially given the climate. Um, what do some of your clients and partners look like? Are they banks or funds? Are they exchanges? Are they um, other institutions? Who do you work with primarily? So the short answer is anybody originating a private asset, right? That's taking that direct to investors. So, uh, you know, that's slightly larger answer to that is, you know, you have uh, multifamily offices that operate both in private investments and public investments. Uh, we would be the technology that would run their privates. And, and that that's, you know, how that works. Um, you know, they, multifamily offices, family offices, venture capital funds, private equity funds, you know, anybody that is bringing or packaging some sort of financial product and going direct to an investor with it. Um, you know, a lot of these people are seeking out distribution sources, better ways to distribute, not just better ways to operate, save time, you know, and cost, which what we do is automate a lot of these functions that are just time consuming, right? They require a lot of touch points. Um, you know, it becomes a single source of truth and really allows them to take their business without the need of additional resources to another level, right? It allows them to scale to another level. Even if they don't want to scale to too many more investors, they can now add more funds without adding more personnel. Um, you know, that's kind of the goal. So that, that's, that's kind of a little insight into who we are working with. The funds, fund sizes, I guess, um, would be a good place to, to focus. I mean, really, there is a break point. You know, if you're not raising more than $5 million, like this platform probably isn't the right version for you. Like this is targeted at, you know, middle market to institutional level you know, funds. Um, you know, I think some will find value in doing the $5 million levels, but, you know, we're going to be operating with funds of 50 million and up, uh, probably predominantly. Um, you know, this is traditional finance and we're trying to bridge them into, uh, you know, a more web two 
plus Web3 world. You know, there's a little bridge between the two there. Um, and uh, I think, you know, when you're looking at massive funds of those sizes, uh, actually, this is an interesting statistic when, I, when you think about it. Early stage funds are typically defined as 20 million to 100 million. Early stage. You know, when you think about an early stage company or a late stage company, a growth stage company, uh, the average fund size, according to our, you know, target sales research is 330 million in the United States. So, you know, if that, if that gives you kind of a, a bearing of how many funds are out there, there's, I believe, more than 1400 tracked firms in the United States. And of those firms, there's about four funds released per year or managed. So you end up, you end up with about. Uh, I think the statistic was around 5,400 funds are actively raising capital in a given year. Uh, so that there's, there's a little bit about who, how many people are out there as potential clients for us as well. Yeah, it's not an overly surprising statistic, at least for me. But I think for normal people, you know, they go, oh, a million dollars is a lot of money and $20 million I could never even imagine. But, you know, in this world, you know, 20 million is nothing for a fund. I mean, there's funds that are worth billions of dollars um, in a normal fund. Yeah. Being worth hundreds of millions. Um, so, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good thing to point out. Um, yeah. You guys also mentioned that you incorporate smart contracts into the system that you guys have. Do you have a preferential blockchain that you guys use for that? Um, yeah. Or does it matter? I think it matters a lot actually, but Brian, go ahead and lead into it. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to throw this out there. Um, you know, depends on the client. Right. Mm -hmm. Some clients want this to be private and they may be institutional level and they want to stay within a, a system that has some controls. And we can add that to this system. Uh, it just we port the contract into private blockchain. We currently sit on ERC 1404 and we utilize 3643 for some of these issuances as well. Um, you know, and, and we've added some key functionality that's unique to our system on top of those two protocols, but that's, that's Ethereum blockchain. Uh, it's just widely used. It's easy to uh, get in and out of. And I think that's what most of these funds are going to look for is, you know, how many people can use it uh, and how easily. Uh, so that's, that's the, the default for us right now is Ethereum. Um, but we do see a lot, a lot of really big ones like Avalanche, um, you know, Algorand, a bunch of these that are moving towards the, the focus of, uh, traditional capital, traditional financial uh, services. And, you know, those are ones that we have uh, have the ability to launch on as well. Um, right now, they're not our, our default, though. Yeah, Paul would love to get your opinion on it as well, since you're the CTO. But is there outside of Ethereum, maybe another blockchain that you guys want to consider in the future? Or do you, are you guys comfortable sitting with Ethereum and its current developments? Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of aspects and, and things to take into consideration. I mean, yeah, it absolutely depends on the situation and the customer. But, you know, with with Ethereum, you get the transparency, you get a, a real distributed ledger that everyone can see. And it kind of drives us closer in the community closer in terms of compliance because of, of the transparency. It's just it just helps. Now, there's other customers, other people in the industry that are using private blockchains. Uh now that, there could be really good business cases for private blockchains, you know. But you know, for example, you're not paying as much gas fees; you're just much cheaper. But at the same time, you don't have the transparency. So maybe they have a business case where they don't want the transparency. Maybe they want to keep it internal. 
But in our case, I mean, I just think it's a really strong move that Brian and the team have already made just landing us on Ethereum to begin with as a default is just, you know, that's the ultra compliant way you want to go, I think. And not you can't achieve compliance on a private blockchain, but it's just, you know, it's, you know, why, why put customers through uh, your own personal proprietary blockchain when you could be on the, you know, something mainstream. Right. And I think it's a challenge. It, it depends on the customer, what they need. You could also work hybrid solutions where par- portions of it are on the Ethereum blockchain and portions are on a private blockchain. And you can actually split, you know, where your business logic is and like where you put things and how the contracts are managed. You can do that in, in a hybrid blockchain in conjunction with just traditional transactional databases as well, like SQL databases. Absolutely. That's and a good point. That That's that's actually ex- exactly where I was going to go next. Is mm-hmm. It's not all on chain. There are inefficiencies when you just sit with an entirely on-chain process, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're thinking about regulations, uh, compliance, you know, having to finish um, or remediate transactions that sometimes require courts, right? Uh, the courts send down an action and you have to do something different uh, with with the tokens, where they sit, who owns them. Um, you know, it's that's where not just being on chain is actually very, very beneficial. But having on chain as as the ability to control the checks and balances within the system and automate things to remove the human process and human error from a lot of these functions is is key. So you know, Paul has led, you know, the team uh, with with one of our lead developers, Anthony, uh, to you know build a really unique identity system and a really unique um, system to to hold a bunch of data off chain that is secure and reliant on the smart contract call to it. So there's the basically they're oracles, right? Uh, for those you know. Uh, also hyper nerds like me out there. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, we have to make it cost effective for customers. If, if we had for every small, small little thing that they wanted to do had to be on chain, it would be cost prohibitive for them to even do the regular day-to-day business. So a lot of the things that happen that are kind of the administrative stuff kind of, it needs to happen off chain. It needs to be logged and, you know, completely, you know, secure as, as, as it should be. But those milestone events, you know, we can publish those to the public blockchain to, 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 you know, and then we, we, at the same time, we have redundancy both on the on-chain and off-chain in both systems. So we have a, a way to compare that we're always in sync, which is like it has, it has an extra layer of confidence to what we're doing. Absolutely. I think that's a good comparison of the two. Uh, a lot of people think that you have to do everything like on-chain these days, but the reality is it's not always as efficient as you might think. So, um, yeah, you make some good points. And I think a lot of companies might trend in that direction as well to take advantage of some of those benefits of off-chain or side-chain type of action. Uh, Last question before we start to wrap up, what is your guys's roadmap kind of look like the rest of the year or going into the near future for acquire? What are some things that maybe you guys are working on um, or things that you want to share with people so they can, you know, stay excited and kind of keep up with the development you guys got going on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Brian. If if you want to, I can, Go for it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. really, I mean, what, what we're getting into is, you know, if you look at the Robinhood for private markets, it's to make that even happen. There's this thing, the changes that have to happen in the industry and with people that are providing the funds to even allow this to even happen. So we're basically paving the runway for, 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 for Robinhood for the private markets. And so we're looking at what are those pain points inside the, 
the, those offices where they're having to issue funds, like what are they, what, 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 what's make, what's, you know, what makes their, uh, makes it painful for them to actually deliver, uh, you know, uh, securities at volume. And so there's things that are happening in the, in the day-to-day work that they do that are administrative related efficiencies that we're creating and things that create incredible speed that they've never had before and messaging, uh, 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 tools that they've never had access to before. Um, is focusing on those pain points in that space right now to get those get those uh, those 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 family offices those VCs into a position where they can quickly issue securities on the market, get investors in there in the driver's seat, and 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 and, and their money at work as fast as possible. So the roadmap that we're working on is around those efficiencies that are you know in, in the issuing of funds and managing users and investors and communicating to users. Yeah, I just to kind of put a layer on that. You know, we have built a, an incredible product ready to, you know, operate funds to a certain extent. That data model that we built on the base is a foundation. If you want to take an analogy of building a house, right, you know, you, you end up with all the flourishes and, and the, the sweet little, you know, touches on it at the end. But that foundation is there. We've started to build automations on top of that. So floor one is built, floor two, you know, what we're going through over the next six to 10 months is actually, you know, taking functions that currently exist that fund administrators do that take an exorbitant amount of time that are not uh, automated in any systems that we're aware of uh, and, and embed those into this system. And because we have the foundation we have and we built it with you know, smart contracts in the base layer, it allows a lot of these functions to just flow through. And some of those are like, you know, capital calls, bringing out, uh, tax statements, uh, PCAP, calculating net asset value, pro rata shares, um, you know, a lot of these things people do manually. You know, even if you can accept payment and get someone a settled, you know, share into your account, that's only part of the fund process. There's this whole life cycle piece and there's, you know, evergreen funds, interval funds, and then there's your one-off funds. So these different types of funds have different pain points. And what we're building now is actually going to solve those pain points. Um, you know, we work directly with a few pilot clients and an incredible board of advisors who works at the highest level, you know, in the financial services world. Um, Black, the former Blackstone, uh, Alliance Bernstein, PIMCO, Goldman, uh, Deutsche Bank. You know, we've identified things that, to be frank, they just hated doing when they worked there. <laughs> you know, uh, like what? What do I hate? Okay, let's build that, right? Because that's the thing that we're we're gonna sell on. Not just saving people time, money, and personnel, but you know, a little bit of energy along the way too. Right, right. Where can people go um, if they want to learn more about Acquire, or if they want to learn from you guys? You guys seem to have a lot of knowledge in this side of finance. Uh, I think people would really enjoy listening to you guys' opinions. Are you guys on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter? Yeah, definitely LinkedIn. We're all over LinkedIn. Um, you know, we we've got our our website's a direct link to us fill out a form there. You can get us in, in a heartbeat. Uh, it's actually right below me, uh, acquireinvest.com. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say our, our Twitter is, is somewhat active, uh, sometimes more than others, depends on how, uh, how active we are in building, you know, um, mm-hmm. if, our, if we're heads down, I, I'm not posting as much, but you know, you'll find some good stuff on our Twitter account as well. It's just at acquire invests with an S at the end. Um, so Cool. Guys, I really appreciate the episode. It's been really great. Um, thank you for taking the time. 
where can people go to learn more directly about acquire? Should they just go to the website or do you want to direct them to like a blog or, or a community? You tell me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the website. It, it'll link to other places. Like we do have a discord. Um, we do have, like I said, the, the, uh, the Twitter account. Um, and uh, we, we write some articles every once in a while and put them up in our, our medium. Uh, we're probably going to be moving our medium into a, a site hosted blog as well. Uh, but yeah, we, we try to keep it as, as central and simple as possible. Go to our website and click around. You'll, you'll definitely get a connect right straight to us. Awesome. We'll do. We'll be sure to share all the links and everything in the bio for the episode, as well as on social media. We'll be sure to push it out and tag you guys and make sure everyone knows. Um, but thank you guys. Really appreciate it. It's been a really good episode. Very technical, but learned a lot of things about you know the private side of equity and finance and you know the industry that you guys are in. So really appreciate it, guys, both of you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Brandon. Appreciate it. It's been great. See you in the next one. See you in part three. <laughs>